Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast, another summer edition. We are sitting in beach chairs, <laughs> sipping Mai Tais, uh, soaking up true. the rays, um, and uh, man, we're just excited to be a part of your day to whatever degree, however long this little relationship between us lasts, I'm very grateful. Yeah. So Tim and I, we feel honored to do this. Hello. Timothy, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Michael? Well, Timothy, I am doing well. I am not on a beach, not tanning, and not sipping my ties. I, I am know. Instead... Now that you said that, I'm just thinking if we were able to do these remote podcasts. Where, if you could go on vacation anywhere, Timothy, where would you go right now? Well, that what you just said sounds great. I've never been on like a real tropical. I've never Ooh. been to any of like the South American resorts or any of that kind of stuff. Okay, that's fair. So I, that sounds pretty nice. Yeah, I'd go for that. Something yeah. nicely though. I don't want to be around a lot of other people. Okay. Shocking. Yeah, that's yeah. Somewhere <laughs> that celebrates Halloween all year. I know. I want Iceland was <laughs> supposed to be my fortieth birthday trip, but where Iceland was supposed to be. Ooh. We were gonna backpack the whole island. Wow. Great music. Alien terrain seems fun. Yep. yep. That's uh, pretty amazing. So yeah. instead we watch Say Anything. <laughs> <clears throat> A close second to be sure. Timothy. Yes. We've got some people to thank today. I want to thank uh, Rebecca Ray. I want to thank Caleb and Tiffany and Tamara or Tamara um, for coming on our Patreon team this week, thank you. We are, as always, a crowdfunded 501c3. And so um, your support is tax deductible, but it's far more important than that to us. Uh, there are big plans afoot in the Circle K, uh, <laughs> Timothy Stafford. And so we're just super grateful for, for everyone, um, not only who listens, we're continually surprised that people listen to this nonsense, but we are um, eager and uh well no eager is not the right word i would say we are um uh it's unexpectedly surprising when uh, people actually support us with money and so just thank you that's yeah. really an honor i've got uh, a couple of things before we get to our interview today we um we we've talked about abortion and gun control and sexual assault and all sorts of things and so, not surprisingly, uh, there are folks in our community who very gently disagree with us, or maybe not gently, but at least they email gently. And um, and so, of course, we are in the process, as everybody else, we're learning, we're growing, we're seeing what's going on, and uh, certainly, certainly not above critique. It has been estimated that uh, that almost 40% of what we say is wrong. Wow. Um, yeah, that's uh, according to some... Um, I don't know, some ethereal measure, but we just don't know which 40%. And that's the issue, guys, right there. So uh, this is from um, a gentleman who said I wanted to pass along a few critiques of the portion of the last episode. So this was two or three episodes ago um, pertaining to gun control, etc. First, there was a lot of discussion about hypocrisy, about restrictions on abortion, immigration, etc., while not wanting these restrictions on guns, the most obvious problem with that is that the podcast has generally taken the opposite stands from all of these, which would likewise make you hypocritical just in the opposite direction. 
but I don't really think that of you because there are relevant and important deal to, details that nuance and differentiate these issues. I appreciate that. Secondly, it was disappointing which quotes you chose to highlight to represent the Republican position. <laughs> I wouldn't argue that Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren uh, Boebert don't represent anyone on the right, but they are clearly not the most coherent or mainstream spokespersons. It's a disservice to the audience and the conversation to only discuss the outlier arguments and personalities. Now, what's fascinating is... Um, I certainly would agree they seem like outlier personalities, but I hear those same arguments from all sorts of people, not just them. Yeah, and um, in a lot of ways, it seems like the party is galvanizing behind a lot of those loud, or the party splitting at least behind behind. Yeah, the Boberts and the Hollies and the. Yeah, I don't. You know, I can't speak to that, and certainly we don't want to just use the. We don't want to use straw men, you know, to right. critique. The, the issue for me is that the same arguments, you can't legislate against evil. I hear those all over the place, not just from them. So I don't know. I think those positions might be a bit more mainstream than the personalities are. Not sure. Thirdly, I just want to ask what the purpose of the discussion was. Um, not saying nobody should discuss it or anything. It just felt like you didn't have a whole lot to actually say other than doing nothing bad, saying thoughts and prayers bad. <laughs> Usually I listen to your podcast because you have unique or previously unheard to me thoughts, but this time you didn't have any, uh, didn't have that in any way. So I could have just listened to a Vox Media podcast and gotten the same thing. It's fine. It's your podcast. Just didn't feel like there was a direction to it overall. Mm. And, and certainly we decided to do just a lament podcast. We just wanted to lament. And so, um, yeah, I, there wasn't some cool theological point in the middle of it. It was just the three of us wrestling through, oh my goodness, this is what's happening in our country and trying to model uh, what lament might look like. None of these critiques is to say that you're wrong. It's just frustrating to me, so you get to hear about it. <laughs> That's fair. Hey, we welcome this. No problem. Um, he said, hopefully this makes sense. It's sometimes hard to tell if I'm explaining myself or rambling off. Please keep making the podcast. I hate and love every minute of it as you help me grow into a fuller standing and love of Christ. That is that is wonderful. What a great compliment to end on. Thank you for uh, emailing in. And we, we do, we do want to uh, always listen to our community and the critiques and pushbacks. And so... Um, yeah, we received those and thank you for the kindness with which you expressed them. Got another question, Timothy, before we get to our interview. Uh, this is from a pastor of a small congregation in rural America. And so hallelujah for pastors like you. I mean, seriously, um, I, I don't know. I just, not that it matters, but it seems like we have a number of of those folks in our community. And I just want to say, wow, we're really proud of you and can't imagine the hard work that goes in to pastoring these days. There, there are lots of reports on the pretty uh, significant exodus out of pastoral ministry. And, um, you know, in, uh, during the pandemic and, and after. And um, so for those who are sticking it out in, in, circumstances that that maybe aren't ideal not saying that yours are, isn't or you know not but um but i just want to say well done um we have just begun a journey into center uh, into a center set way of churching together which is awesome yeah 
Our local high school decided it was time to do a pride parade that we are recording this when it is Gay Pride Month. Our Jedis, that's the term we use for our hyper-spiritual prayer people, found out about the parade and they are in an unholy uproar. I'd love some advice as to how to invite these precious folks into a different kind of response. And notice how he framed it. I mean, mm -hmm. just even framing it this way is so far ahead of what we would normally do, right? Yeah. Advice, precious folks, invite, different kind of response. I mean, you, yeah. it's all, you've already framed it in a center set way. We're inviting people who are made in the image of God to a different kind of response. That's so great. Yeah. I deeply love them and their fervent dedication to prayer and to our church. We've had a few chats, but I just have not been able to shift their perspective on this. There is such fear and anger in them about the parade, and it leads them to a militaristic sort of culture war response totally, and not just them, so many of us. We have to pray this down, and we have to battle the enemy. They for sure are calling the powers the enemy, but it would be far too easy for that to shift to these kids as the mm. enemy. Thoughts? Um, I, I want to lead with just an affirmation of how you've already chosen to approach it. Yeah. I mean, seriously, invite out of love and care, uh, respecting their dignity and their process. If these are older folks, man, these are people who uh, have seen such cultural upheaval in the last 20 years beyond what they could have ever have imagined. Yeah. That I can understand why fear and anger is often the chosen chosen response. Yeah, that actually sounds like shepherding. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? It sounds caring and gentle and um, intentional with, you know, how you're leading or governing or trying to take care of your, you know, your people. I think that yes. sounds amazing. Yes, yes. So, I, I you know, man, you already are ahead of me. Um, <laughs> so, I... I'll, I'll just throw <laughs> so down do a you couple have any advice. Yeah, seriously, tell me how to do this. Um, so I wouldn't worry about um, fighting this year's Pride Parade battle. Um, the The concern would be shifting them slowly towards the year after and the year after. Um, and so, I mean, if I were, uh, without knowing the situation and without knowing you, although you sound amazing. Um, I would just want to say, hey, let's not talk about LGBTQ issues because they're already going to be entrenched. Let's talk. I would I would invite them to say, hey, let's read the book of Luke together. And let's just look at the way in which Jesus responds to all these different people. Some are religious, some are not religious. There are several instances of sexual minorities. Um, the woman that anoints Jesus's feet is one of the most prominent and how would Jesus receive these people? And you're not you're not tackling the issue sort of directly or head on. You're just building their their moral imagination around how it is that Jesus approached people, which leads obviously to the natural and inevitable question: Well, how would Jesus treat people like that today? And um, I think that if you go after the issue directly, I think that'll feel too threatening. And if you and if you um, try to do it immediately, like, hey, I really want to shift you in the next three weeks before this, you know, parade or whatever. I don't know right. that that's going to work either. I would simply want to, per the center set conversation, I'd want to keep clarifying the center um, to say, 
what it what 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 would Jesus do with these kids? How would he yeah. approach them? What is it that he, how is it that he would invite them to repentance? What do you see from the gospel? Um, and take a really slow burn approach, which is the the hardest work. It's just easier, you know, to have quickest quick chats and get frustrated if they don't shift right away. Um, anyway, that's the only thought I would have. I'm proud of you for loving these people that well and not wanting to wanting to both challenge and uh, love them into their futures. I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and it's not that we're trying to get them to agree. Um, it's that how would Jesus relate to them? Uh, what's the posture we're to take towards events or groups uh, that um, hold different views and positions that we do? And the only way I know is just a good soak in one of the Gospels, baby, and um, and let Jesus do His work. So I'd love I'd love to know what you end up doing and what you do differently. So. Let us know. Thank you for trusting us with this. Tim, you want to add anything to that? I just think that most of the time when there's groups of people that we as a church disagree with, um, we often dehumanize or use language or ideas that are dehumanizing. And it makes it easy to be against Mm. um, people that have been stripped of human agency. Mm -hmm. So the first thought that I had was like, I would invite those Jedis to go to the parade and to maybe meet some people and to put some flesh and blood onto the issue before, Love it. even before a conversation or even before a debate or anything like that, like go and experience people as people and then start that kind of long process of like, what does it really mean? What is it what we're really riled up about? What are we really against? Um, but I do feel like we start from a dehumanizing position because it makes it easier. Logically, it makes sense. Sure. But um, to, to let... You know, yeah, I don't know. That was the first thought that I had. I love your first thoughts, Timothy. Thank you. Um, in another story that, um, I don't know, we we mentioned a fellow by the name of Bruxy Cavey, um, who was a pastor in Canada, Ontario, I believe, and had written a book called The End of Religion, uh, he and Greg Boyd, um, and and really a whole kind of network of Anabaptist friends, have been influential in some of my thinking yeah. around the relationship between the church and the state. And uh, Bruxy uh, confessed in March to an adult, an extramarital affair um, with somebody. I think in the congregation, the 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 circumstances. I think it turned out. Uh, were that he was 46, she was 23, and in crisis. Mm-hmm. And he was charged. Um, I think uh, Canadian uh, consent law is a little different. He was charged and arrested uh, this past week. And um, and uh, he was set you know, free on with some conditions and is waiting trial. And it was just sort of a, oh, again... Uh, you know, and then they evidently there's some other uh, victims that are coming forward, and it's just you know, uh, you just add it to the pile of heartbreaking, horrible yeah. scenarios. But somebody had written a comment that so resonated with me uh, that I just wanted to share the comment and, and reflect on it. Um, and it, this was left on uh, 
Bruxy's website. He said, Bruxy, tough news, despicable actions, overwhelming pain. The real message, other than simply another story of clergy sexual abuse, is that your actions don't change the message of Jesus. And I agree. That's one of the things Bruxy said is, hey, don't hold this against Jesus. This is, you know, on me. But he, uh, he said, but what your actions, along with the action of other Christian perverts, do is they illustrate the impotence of Jesus and the reality that he and his message are a nice story, but not different than all the other nice stories of other religions. Christian leaders are not different than others, and that's what's disturbing. No matter how close to Jesus, he is not powerful enough to enable his people to live different lives than people of any other politic. That's the real message to me. Mm. Oh, my Lord. Like, literally, what difference? I mean, that's what difference does Jesus make in the reality of people is, is what he's saying. And, and it appears none at all. Yeah. In fact, it makes you worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, it raises per- a lot of... I started watching the... Um, so I, know, I don't think you still probably haven't listened yet, but like the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast and... Yes, I have not just listened. Just because the, the details of it, you know, there's so much, I don't know. But then I started watching that documentary on Hillsong that's out right now. Ooh. And it's kind of the history of Hillsong. And you see some of the similar, some similar patterns or, or things that are kind of like, you know, things, how, th- how over time things became about other than Jesus. Sure. And, uh. When we have so many conversations right now about all the things that are going on, and my tendency is always burn it down. It's not working anymore. It hasn't worked in a long time. I know that that might not be the right answer. It's my <laughs> knee-jerk response to it because it is seems so overwhelming, and the yeah, the name of Jesus within our culture and time because of these incidents has been so tarnished. So it's like we need to start over. But I but your that comment's so right. Like we had so how do you how do you fix that like is it's because as we talk about roots and symptoms how do we fix those like poisoned roots um (laughs) (laughs) and you don't have to answer that but i just like if there's a question if it's not a tear it down burn it down start over we've tarnished this thing over the last couple hundred years or more what is the way to like bring life back to the roots? Because it is all, we are dealing with symptoms. It's like, oh, here's another one. Here's another one. Hey guys, this isn't Jesus. This isn't Jesus. This isn't Jesus. This is just this guy or this guy or this guy. (laughs) But what a great, but what a great point to then say, well, then Jesus makes no difference. Totally. I mean, obviously (laughs) it's just a nice story. Like all the other stories, there can't be any real difference that's made. And that's the Hillsong thing is you watch that church adapt to modern culture in its function and in its drive. And so obviously the obvious end result of humans getting that much power in like adulation and all that kind of stuff is going to lead to like, Hey, all these young women are super interested in me. I've become an icon and yeah, all that kind of stuff. So it's like, and then, and then we react again to the symptoms and we keep doing that for generation after generation. At what point do we say these roots have become so poisoned? How do we, how do you repot, replant? I don't know. Horticulture yeah. references yeah. to try yes. to figure that out. But yes. I, was there um, ever an untarnished version? I don't know, but it wasn't, 
it's gotten so big, I think is the issue now. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I'm, I want to explore that for a second because, you know, I look at the early church and go, man, it would be so great to be back there. Right. And then you read the epistles. Right. And you're like, what a joke. And that's most of Paul's ministry, it seems like. It's just like, right. Hey, it's cleaning hey, hey, up hey. after the crap of the elephants in the parade, right? I mean, it's literally like you preach the gospel, these great, huge, you know, like truths come swathing through a community. And then there's just all this crap that's sort of left over. And in Corinth, I mean, it was nuts. Yeah. And uh, and then you're like, ooh, and then Constantine grabs a hold of it, and then the Catholic Church, and even the Reformation wasn't as pure and perfect as <laughs> I was led to believe. And so I don't know. I mean, it, it, is there a tarnished version? Um, has it has is there an untarnished version outside of just what Jesus Himself did? And probably not. But there there do seem to be scale differences. To your point, right? It, this is so public and so crazy um and um and so on the one hand i want to say well but part of the message is that human beings you know whatever scalpel they use to try to remove evil becomes part of the evil they're trying to remove Hmm. and so not shockingly the new testament in the same way the torah did for for Paul, you know, has become hijacked by the powers and it becomes this just excuse to do whatever it is that we're going to do. But I think you're right in the sense that I share that burn it down thing. And somebody challenged that recently. I think someone emailed us and said that you don't have to burn it down. It's self-destructing. Right. It's bearing, it's bearing the fruit that's been planted years ago. Uh, so don't worry about it. Jesus is going to burn it down, right? Jesus will trim away all the branches that aren't fruitful. Um, and none of those fruitful branches ever make news. So Jesus right. does make uh, a difference. I've I've seen and experienced that difference. Right. Um, uh, and 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 I think loads of people quietly working, like right. our pastor friend, you know, yeah. in a rural context, just working to love people. No, that's never going to draw any attention. Of right. course. So. I don't know. I think I think it's self-destructing. I think Jesus, if it's not self-destructing, then Jesus is exposing it, which is what I've thought for years, right? Is that Jesus is deconstructing his church in America by just showing he's bringing light to all these dark places. And the carnage of people who comment like that, I mean, I just can't blame them for just drawing the conclusion, oh, well, this makes zero difference. It's just another story. Uh, I read another comment uh, somewhere just saying, listen, clearly the resurrection life and new creation life regarding sexuality in the church is non-existent because the church just looks the same way that everyone else does. There is no, absolutely no difference and um and so for me when i when i look at a comment like that i don't look at the church like i'm just tired of looking at the church with a capital c right i look at me and i look at my church so i'm part of a community and uh, the object of judgment in that community isn't the church it's me mm-hmm. right so um those sort of comments instead of just leaving me looking at the ruins of Western evangelicalism is some sort of big C capital church thing in America. 
I, I feel those feelings, but I'm also planted in a local community enough that that's where my imagination now turns instead of totally, you know, just the, oh, it's just awful. Because uh, I'm around people who aren't perfect, uh, nor am I, obviously, but there is a work that's being done that is the slow burn, the steady, you know, sort of formation work that um, really does make a difference. Does that make sense? Totally. I, I think it's, when I think about it and I think about, yeah, Jesus is coming in and cleaning house and shining a light and doing the pruning. My initial idea or the, the initial thought that I have is like, we need to do a better job so that he doesn't have to come in and prune. Like our, we do have a, we have agency in the situation. And part of that is like, it's the carnage that is left. Those, the carnage is like people. Yes. Like, it's like, it's people's lives. You know, some of these women, I don't know what this Bruxy guy did to them or with them, but they're going to be carrying the wounds of that for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And it's like, we have to, and I, and I know this is all hyperbolic. It's all just, you know, how do we change the entire world? No, but it's repentance there. We have to repent. Yes. And then, but, but, but yeah. And then in that repentance, like we need to give leaders the tools, not we, but the Royal we, or the bigger we <laughs> totally need to give like it's something's something's broken in like the yes. I want to say the seminary system, but whatever it is that is whatever system leaders. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's not, it's not functioning correctly because we're only reacting to the bad fruit. We're not right. Helping right. the tree anymore. And then Jesus comes in and is like, yeah, this is bad fruit. I'm going to, I'm going to prune it and trim it. And it's like, man, I feel embarrassed that he has to come in and clean up consistently because he has asked us to do better, mm-hmm. but we're not doing better. Mm-hmm. So how do we not equip? Because that word is off the market. That's an awful word. <laughs> how do we? How do we build a better system that produces not like perfect fruit, but at least more intentionally grown and better fruit? Yeah, like pesticides. Yeah. So so what do you think? How do you think Jesus of Nazareth would answer that question? Right. And I, I, I know, and I, that's why, I mean, this is all hyperbolic because we're looking at a much larger, and I don't know if there, there probably isn't a scaled version of this that works to, unless every single pastor or every single kid sitting in seminary right now and every person who teaches in seminary is like, we're going to redo this. We're going to restructure this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I get it. I get it. Because I want to live in the following tension. Um, there is no way that human beings will perfect the kingdom on earth. That is, that, is, that is what Jesus will do. He will consummate it when he returns. On the other hand, we do have massive amounts of agency and are held accountable yeah. for the structures and systems that we use. Right, And there is a deep, not only personal repentance, but institutional repentance yeah. that has to take place curious what that means or what that looks like um i think it's it's got to be building on other foundations right because i think for me and again this is overly simplistic but when we start with a gospel that only concerns itself with what happens when we die and, and accepting jesus as my into my heart without having that with it and being able to just get push away the work of justice or the work of um, lament or the work yeah. of listening when it comes it's to institutional selfish. sins. Right. 
Yep. So anyway, <laughs> it was it was just uh, it, that comment wrecked me for all the same reasons you're saying. Yeah, totally. Because we live in this now and not yet, right? It's it's we the kingdom's here now, and we're called to repent now, and we can't perfect it ourselves. So yeah, that's every everything we attempt to do at some point right every movement that's ever been launched becomes a thing it was originally launched against yeah that's tough so yeah it is tough absolutely um so today friends that was all intro by the way (laughs) today friends we have um a new friend who we very much enjoyed getting to know her name is jennifer rosner and um, she is a Messianic Jewish scholar. And um, what that means is that she comes from a Jewish background that she gets into a little bit when we're talking. But she, she encountered this Jesus and then lives in a place that's held suspect by both <laughs> Jews and Christians. Yeah. <laughs> and lives in this sort of middle uh, tension um and um her book is called uh, funding messiah uh and i saw the book and it was recommended but man she just turned out to be super delightful yeah um you never know when you read a book how the author is gonna gonna be but she man just as you'll hear she's she's great and she gets into some things in the book that are really important about how it is that we either ignore the Jewishness of Jesus completely or try to co-opt it in ways that do violence to the Jewishness of Jesus. And um, I think there's a lot here for us to consider as we're wrestling through the big questions of what it is to be saved and what it is to to have faith and uh, experience grace and so on. So anyway, um, we just absolutely loved our conversation with her. Here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Dr. Jennifer M. Rosner coming at us live from where? Where are you at? Northern, Northern California. Oh, Uh-oh. Tim is from Northern California as well. And so you guys are getting the heat of by understanding. Are things on fire yet? Not yet. Oh my gosh, don't even say it. We're I hoping know. That I know. it will not be on fire this summer. It's horrible. It is absolutely horrible. We lived in Southern California for 20 years, and that even would get on fire. Um, I can't imagine how rough it is uh, up in NorCal. So God it's bless been a you guys. a rough couple years. Our entire town was evacuated last summer because of the Caldor fire. So, oh, geez. And the whole summer was just a bust because it was too smoky to leave our house, basically. So we are hoping for better luck this summer. Boy, amen. Um, Jen, thank you for allowing us to call you that. Has just written a book called Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel. And that is a topic that just lights us up. We are, uh, I, I, my faith has totally been revitalized mm-hmm. upon discovering, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, oh my goodness, Jesus was Jewish. And wow, that has really <laughs> important implications for how we understand everything. Um, just by way of introduction, Jen, would you share just a little bit about your personal story, which is obviously interwoven throughout the book, 
mm-hmm. about how it was that you find yourself at this in this interesting intersection of being somebody who sees Jesus as Messiah but comes from a Jewish heritage. Mm-hmm. What's that been like, and kind of what what has brought you to this place? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and it is as you mentioned a big part of the book, Finding Messiah. It's it's the most personal book I've ever written. Um, and it does share, you know, not my entire story, but but bits and pieces of it. And it shares the way in which my story has really led me into the heart of a set of questions related to Jesus, Judaism, Christianity, church history, these kinds of things. So, uh, so it's a great place to start. So I was raised in a Jewish family in Northern California. Both of my parents had been born and raised in Los Angeles and then got married and moved to a little teeny tiny town in Lake Tahoe, California. Um, and so I was raised without a lot of broader Jewish community, mm-hmm. but with a fairly strong sense of Jewish identity, mostly in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we could go down into my parents' dispositions. My dad was a little bit jaded towards organized religion and his experience of it, but he was very committed to instilling in my brother and I a deep and abiding like faith in God, um, which for him may have been a little bit de- de- disconnected from Judaism. And my mom was almost the opposite. She was still struggling with questions of faith and belief, but she was very committed to Jewish identity and Jewish practice. And so that was very important for her. So that was how I was raised. I was raised without a lot of broader communal structure, but in a home that both valued um, at least certain aspects of Jewish practice um, and Jewish rhythms um, and and a a really strong um, desire to have a personal relationship with God. How did that, I'm sorry, can I interrupt just for one second? I'm so sorry. No, of course. How did you then understand yourself out Mm -hmm. of that background? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it was a little bit bifurcated, as you might imagine, giving these different, you know, emphases and, and dispositions of my parents. So I remember having um, a pretty elementary, but um, but really meaningful relationship with God that included like a prayer life and and some sort of kind of non contextual theology about a God who cared about us and loved us and wanted us to live in a certain way, and then kind of. Alongside that was this understanding that we're Jewish and that has that 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 informs our identity, that informs our family history, that informs our um, you know way of life in a in a very um, distinct way. Yeah. Uh, and and both of those felt meaningful to me, but I think because of the different places that my parents were coming from, they did feel a little bit disconnected for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. If that answers the question, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So so then you get exposed to kind of broader thought forms um, around this Jesus character. What was that? What was that like? And how did your parents receive that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, my my closest friend in middle school was Catholic. And I remember mm. like going to mass with her, which is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never I never heard the gospel. Like I never knew who the person of Jesus was or is until I went off to college. And I went off to a large public state school in California um, that just so happened to be you know, God was kind of on the move there. The the, the Campus Crusade chapter, which is now, I think now called Crew, mm-hmm. um, at my college went from 30 people to 500 people in a five-year period. And that's the time that I was there. So like wow. something was going on and it sort of just so happened that all of my friends and roommates were Christians at this like secular, you know, university. And so I, I feel like uh, it was just inevitable for me to be exposed to Christianity. And I 
Um, you know, I, I originally started going to church with my roommates simply because I didn't like being the only kid in my dorm on a Sunday morning who wasn't at church. Like that's oh, what we're talking about. Yeah. So I started going to um, just a uh, like non-denominational church with her. And then my roommate became very involved with a vineyard church plant mm-hmm. uh, that I also kind of tagged along with her. And I, by this point, I was kind of tagging along to Campus Crusade meetings and um, some of my theological and spiritual questions, uh, like maybe a little bit about the tension that I had been raised with as a child. And now all of a sudden encountering this person of Jesus kind of began to take center stage in my undergraduate years. And I began to sort of wrestle with these questions. And I went to the Jewish student group, uh, the the Jewish, you know, campus group, which was called Hillel. And I just found that they were not, um, wrestling with the same kinds of theological questions. It was much Mm. more a a kind of a cultural Judaism that was Mm. being preserved and discussed and, you know, and it just wasn't my questions. And so what were were some of the questions that were very pressing? Yeah. I mean, I think that centered around, I mean, the person of Jesus, which obviously the Jews were not going to be talking about for lots of historical reasons that we can get into. Um, But I I was very fascinated by the person of Jesus. I was very um, drawn into the kind of community that I was witnessing in these different settings uh, and iterations of, of, of Christianity, you know, Campus Crusade and these church communities. Um, I, I think I was really struck by the way that people were so connected and dedicated to one another, that these people just like cared so deeply about each other in a way that I hadn't encountered in other settings in the same way. Um, and then again, lots of questions about the New Testament, about the Bible, about uh, understanding this kind of larger framework for meaning uh, that I feel like I, I was a little bit on the outside of, but mm-hmm. but sort of connected to and wanting to be more a part of. So, um, so these communities were just, um, again, this Vineyard Church and Campus Crusade for me were were like, I just wanted to be a part of everything. And I sort of became a part of everything by the end of my undergraduate years, because it was just, it was just speaking directly to, I think, a kind of spiritual hunger that I had Mm -hmm. and had not yet found, um, you know, an outlet for Mm -hmm. expressing and, you know, connecting over and, 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 and and structuring my life around really. Mm -hmm. When, when you first encountered Jesus talk and Jesus thought, um, was it presented in a way that made it a logical extension of Jewish identity? Or was it presented in a way where you had to turn your back on your Jewishness in order to embrace Jesus? It's such a good question. And I feel like my experience of it, I'm I'm guessing is fairly typical for at least sort of a wide swath of like the, you know, American evangelical church. <clears throat> there it's 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 very much the latter like i didn't at all see or understand how it connected to my jewish identity it felt like something entirely different mm. and i didn't know any other i didn't know any jewish followers of jesus totally. at the time i didn't even know like messianic judaism like jews for jesus which is not the same as messianic judaism i didn't know any of it mm. but some of my christian friends like did have this sense that there was something kind of you know, unique about me. And so they'd be like, oh my gosh, you're Jewish. God's chosen people, the 144,000. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) like kind of, you know, at that, at that point, the last thing I wanted was to be like singled out as someone just 
than like yeah. these Christians I was hanging around with. And so to the extent that my Jewishness made me like this, you know, this thing to sort of prop up or, 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 or whatever, this theological category, um, I actually think that, uh, pressing deeper into Christian community for a number of reasons caused me to shelf my Jewish identity. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how these two things connect. Yeah. Um, but this Christian thing feels very, very meaningful to me. And I don't know how else to do that other than the way that all my Christian friends are doing it. And so I really did just put my Jewish identity on the shelf for a number of years mm. and kind of just go into the Christian world um, and so that's kind of where the story picks up. I was a political science major in college and I was planning to go to law school, like most of the students in my department. And by my last year as an undergrad, this story, this kind of plot line, um, theologically and in my own life took center stage. And I became a follower of Jesus again, in this context that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I put the Jewish piece on the shelf and I just thought, I don't want to go to law school. I want, I want this, like, I want more of this. And so rather than going to law school, like I took a year off after my undergrad and I like read through the whole Bible and read every theological book I could get my hands on. And then I went to Yale Divinity School to pursue an MDiv where wow. I was wow. just, yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> here I am, like, you know, you were all in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like all in, like, I, I want to know all the things. And so I went to Yale and I was like a kid in a candy shop with biblical languages and systematic theology and church history. And um, so, so, you know, I, I was hooked once, once I, you know, found out and entered into all of this, this, this community and this set of conversations, it was, it was all over. That was, that was going to be my life. <laughs> <laughs> when did when did it begin to um your imagination began to conceive of the fact that Jesus wasn't something else mm -hmm. um uh <laughs> that but but uh, inherently connected to your Jewish identity when mm -hmm. when did the cracks kind of start forming in that initial picture you'd gotten that they were completely to be separated yeah, again, great question. I mean, I, I would say some seeds were starting to be planted during, I mean, there were already some seeds planted, right, by my like Christian friends in college, like enthusiasm about my Jewish identity, which I was like, whoa, like, I don't know what any of that means. And I don't want to be singled out. Thank you very much. Yes, um, yes. And then during my time at Yale, I took biblical Hebrew from a Jewish woman who was like this feisty, oh. kind of fiery Jewish oh. woman who was like a cantor, I think, at the conservative synagogue in, in New Haven. And she would have us over to her house and feed us snacks and like read biblical texts with us. And um, and there was something about her that made me think uh, th that started to be this little inkling of like, wow, I've actually sort of left something behind. Like I just resonated so deeply with her and these sort of cultural way of being that she had. So I'd say that was like a seed. Um and then honestly, it, it, it happened through a very interesting set of circumstances related to my first cousin, who at the time was living in New York City. Mm -hmm. And she, her father was Jewish, but her mother was not, which means mm -hmm. that according to sort of Orthodox Jewish halacha or, or reckoning, uh, she was not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so she had always felt a connection to Judaism. She had always felt a connection to my very Jewish mother. And she was <laughs> undergoing a process of Orthodox, of a conversion to Orthodox Judaism in New wow. York City, just like this multi-year process where you study with a rabbi and you slowly take on an orthodox jewish life and for her 
um, that process of converting to Orthodox Judaism was like her coming to faith. Like she was falling in love with God and she was falling in love with Jewish life and she was falling in love with Jewish ritual. And I was living in New Haven, Connecticut. She was like an hour train ride away in New York City. And we would get together every, you know, once a month or once every six weeks. And we would just kind of hole up in one of our apartments and and, and just share about our Mm -hmm. spiritual journeys and where we were at and what I was learning in div school and what she was learning in her conversion process. And that for me was the real spark of like, wait, like I actually really have left something behind. And this Mm. Judaism that she is falling in love with, that like lives in me in a way that that has zero expression right now as I live, you know, a Christian life in the Christian world. Um, And so that was really where the tension began to surface kind of hardcore. And I began to ask questions like, is it meaningful for me to like marry someone who's Jewish? Like I had just thought, you know, I'll marry a strong Christian and we'll like live these Christian lives. Um, And so, so that was like my last year in New Haven, Connecticut. And then I, I moved back to California to pursue my PhD at Fuller Seminary. And once I got back to California and to Fuller, this set of questions just 100% took center stage. I, I shared with my doctoral advisor that I was Jewish and he Um, in a way that hadn't uh, at least penetrated in the same way for me at Yale was like, Jen, that really matters. Like you're studying Christian systematic theology and and your Jewishness like deeply matters in Mm -hmm. terms of your perspective on systematic theology and Christian history and all these things. And so he became just this key voice in my life of, of encouraging me to press into that and to begin to make some of those connections. And he very early on in my doctoral program introduced me to Mark Kinzer, who is one of the world's leading Messianic Jewish theologians, um, who who quickly became uh, a strong, you know, friend and mentor and, and now colleague of mine. And so then I, I kind of got introduced to Messianic Judaism through Mark Kinzer, and began this whole journey uh, that 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 took over my entire doctoral program, which, you know, my dissertation became this way, this kind of structured format to wrestle with these identity questions that I was wrestling with. Uh, my dissertation was then published as my first book, which is called Healing the Schism, mm. uh, talking about, you know, the historical schism between yeah. Judaism and Christianity and the remarkable era that we live in where those categories are beginning to be kind of poked at and rethought. Mm. So, so that's, that's sort of how that, that shift happened for me. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you you felt like you had left something behind as you've grown into the realization, you know, that you indeed had and, and kind of bringing whatever was left behind forward with you into mm-hmm. Jesus following. What have you observed about Christians that they've mm-hmm. left behind in kind of a different respect by mm-hmm. not fully appreciating Jesus um, and the the early church is Jewish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's such, such a <clears throat> such a great question, and I feel like there's so many different places we could go with that. <clears throat> I think that increasingly, for me, as I have pressed into these tensions and and sought understanding about the history whereby Judaism and Christianity become these entirely separate and mutually exclusive religious traditions, um, I think that most. Uh, most Christians um, might think or 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 believe that that Judaism doesn't have much to do with Christianity, right? right I think and right, I would say right. Jews would probably say the same thing, um, and that's what history has taught us to yes. think, right? If we or, look at, I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Oh, oh I'm go so for sorry. it. Well, just <laughs> even worse, 
that the church has replaced Israel. Yes. yes. And that Israel has nothing to do mm -hmm. with what God's doing on earth these days. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It takes a number of forms. One is kind of lumping Judaism together with all the other, you know, non-Christian religions. And this is where mm. I love the Christian ethicist, John Howard Yoder, who says mm. Judaism is a non-non-Christian religion. Like you cannot <laughs> just lump it together with all the other, you know, religions, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, or kind of, as you're pointing out, more um, a, on a bit more like theologically hostile level mm -hmm. is actually a real animosity, which, which again has historical precedent right. like there's not that's not coming that out of the blue right i mean um you know a, a, a key source of anti-judaism and anti-semitism over the centuries has come from the christian church right yeah, so there's totally. this deeply ingrained um historical pattern of christian theological and in some cases very practical and real animosity towards the jewish people that then gets read back into scripture right that's how we understand our bibles wasn't paul like just totally fed up with judaism and wanted nothing to do with it and um you know isn't that why jesus had so many clashes with the pharisees like it, it has become um, especially I would say in the West, this deeply entrenched biblical hermeneutic that then reinforces the, you know, the theological perspective. Yep. And, and what I think is so exciting is that all of that is being called into question in yeah. our day, yeah. uh, which I just think is so, so, so very hopeful. We've had um, Dr. AJ Levine on mm -hmm. the show, what, two or three times, Tim? Or more. And... I mean, what a rock star. But the question that she posed that you bring to the forefront too in your in your work was, well, what does Christianity look like if it doesn't have Judaism as a mm -hmm. foil? And um, how would you answer that when you realize, oh, there there is this, uh, really, uh, there's a lot of historical baggage that you get into and do a great job of simplifying for people um, that is also theologically attended to right there's theological baggage that goes with all of that and that so much of christianity was sort of presented as um as a solution to jewish mm -hmm. misunderstandings mm -hmm. um how do you how have you come to see that differently mm. and what is christianity what does christianity look like if it doesn't have that mm -hmm. kind of antithesis sort of posture yeah, I mean, again, I, I feel like there's 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 um, there's a number of directions we could take that that question. And I think one of them is like, what are our Old Testaments if not, um, Come on. you know, the, Come the, on. The, the, yeah, like the story of God's Preach. covenant with the people of Israel, which in every way possible informs our understanding of the coming of Messiah, right? Like, I just do not think, and this is the subtitle of the book, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel. Like, I think if the gospel that we preach has nothing to do with God's covenant with Israel, like, we've just missed something. Okay, okay missed let's, something. let's stop there. That is such a big deal because you, you have the common gospel story of, I'm a sinner, God is mm -hmm. holy, Jesus comes, Mm -hmm. um, as rescuer. And so I'm <laughs> forgiven when, and I'm imputed and all the things. Mm -hmm. Um, you also have people like Andy Standy saying, listen, we have to actually unhook yes. faith from the old Testament. So let's, let's explore this a little bit. If you would, Jen, like what, what, what's wrong with that? True. We, we, we don't understand Jesus as well. Yes. But what's the violence we do to the gospel? 
mm-hmm. if we're not including the story of Israel there. Because I, because most people I would know would say, ah, that's not a central part of the story. Unless mm-hmm. you do something like N.T. Wright does with his five acts, mm-hmm. and that's one chapter mm-hmm. of the story. So right. how would you how would you sort of frame that? Yeah, I mean, I think what's so interesting, and I talk a little bit about Andy Stanley in the book because I find him fascinating, to be honest. But what, what one of the things that I think um, – should be said is that given the gospel that we that often gets preached in the christian church or again western christian church andy stanley's conclusion actually makes a lot of sense like why do we need that old testament it doesn't have any bearing on this person called jesus and what he means for the world like it's a logical conclusion because from that perspective the old testament doesn't doesn't have a place in our theology and so it either becomes um, you know, in, 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 and even in kind of an N.T. Wright sort of four or five act drama, um, how often does that story skip from the fall in Genesis three to the coming of Jesus in Matthew one? Like, yep. why do we need everything in between? That's it. That's it. <laughs> and what so often gets kind of concluded about everything in between is, well, that's a whole long extended narrative of what didn't work. Right. Yes. And why the law failed and why yes. Israel was constantly like fumbling you know, failing people who God only ever had censure for. And that's why we needed Jesus. Like it's this, it's this, um, it it sets up everything in the new Testament against everything in the old Testament. And you get this very strong law gospel dichotomy, um, you know, grace versus works dichotomy. You, you kind of get these, these categories that just fit so perfect in, um, this Greek dualistic, Yep. This is the opposite of this, and it, and it, and it just works so well. Except that it's not the gospel, as <laughs> I understand. Right? <laughs> so, Jen, what is it? What is the Hebrew Bible? What is it to us, and how does it fit in the gospel? If it's not that, and I couldn't agree more. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think it's the story of God creating for Himself a covenant people whose life in the world makes God known in the world. So that's what Torah is, right? God calls the people of Israel and He calls them to live a life of Torah, which is what the 613 commandments throughout, you know, the, the first five books of the Old Testament are. It's what Shabbat is about. It's Come about on. what the Jewish life cycle and holidays are about. All of these things are intended to disclose God in the world, to be a signpost to who God is and to what God's covenant with humanity in in the Old Testament through the people of Israel looks like. And I think we get these markers throughout the Old Testament, um, especially in the prophetic texts, but even all the way back in Genesis of this notion, this inkling that one day these things will will flow outward one day you know the gentiles will come streaming in one day egypt and assyria will be alongside the people of israel as and it's and i and from my reading of the text it's never quite clear how all that's going to happen right but Mm -hmm. but the vision is that what god has always been doing within and among and through the people of Israel is going to expand outward. And this is where Mm -hmm. I think all the stuff on ritual purity, uh, those like containers for understanding God's relationship with humanity, they don't just go away in the New Testament. They don't just go away when Jesus comes on the scene. But finally, what we see through the coming of Messiah is this expansion of God's covenant that we that has always been foretold from the very beginning. And so what we begin to see is that now Gentiles, non-Jews, as Gentiles, 
are, 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 are have this pathway in to worshiping the God of Israel alongside the people of Israel. This is like the grafting in metaphor in, in Romans 11. It's about uh, the nation. So all throughout the Old Testament, we have Israel and the nations, the nations Israel yeah, and the nations. And Israel is like fighting to worship God. And they're constantly being challenged and dragged away by the nations who are, you know, enticing them to worship idols and uh, enticing them to intermarry and fighting for the land with them. And, and, and finally, what you see in the New Testament through the coming of Jesus is this incredible reconciliation between Israel and the nations, whereby now, rather than the nations being the adversary against Israel, the nations are coming alongside exactly in the way that Isaiah prophesied and worshiping alongside the people and of Israel. Under, and under the same basis. Yes. That's a huge absolutely. point that you make. It's not that, not that he's doing something new mm -hmm. here, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that yes. it, that's the yes. Yes. It, I'm just I'm just amening your preaching. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But yes, no, exactly. I mean, this is this is the problem with with creating Judaism as a foil to Christianity, because if Christianity is all about gospel and grace and you know, all these freedom, right? Uh, yep. then Judaism has to be about works, righteousness, Law, yeah. legalism, right? Yes. Which is like a dirty word in, in Christian circles and like the Pharisees, those awful Pharisees. And so you get this, this, this construct whereby they are like these exactly opposite systems. And what I always want to say is that Judaism was always based on those things. And yet we cannot... Um, again, sort of dichotomize or have this dualistic understanding of grace and law, right? Grace is manifested through a, a, a pathword, a pathway of obedience, right? Mm -hmm. Through um, a, a certain set of practices, through what we do and don't do with our bodies and with our time and with our resources, right? Like, so, so it's, it's actually quite similar to Christian discipleship, isn't it? Like God invites us into covenant relationship and then calls us to live in a particular way. That's exactly what God's covenant with Israel has always been about. He rescues and redeems his, his chosen people from slavery in Egypt. And then he gives them the gift of Torah, which is a way to live their lives in alignment with this covenant that has been gifted to them. And I think the Christian story, or at least the story of the coming of Jesus is the same story. That's right. It's just this outward expansion Right. Um, of God's covenant with the people of Israel. And, and, and of course, there's lots of particulars that have to be worked out that we see, you know, getting worked out in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, for example, um, but it's the same narrative. And so uh, I think that's the gospel that that so often gets missed when we have Judaism as the foil and the Old Testament that's is like an so example good. of everything that didn't work, etc. I'm really, one of the parts of the book that I will absolutely remember and take away is the question I think you were being interviewed for citizenship um, mm -hmm. in Israel, and and mm -hmm. the rabbi, I, I wrote it down. What is, uh, what did you find in Christianity that you didn't find in Judaism? Mm -hmm. And which which wow, what a question that is. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd love it if you wouldn't mind just to to share a little bit about what your answer was, mm -hmm. because uh, on at the same time. Uh, we have as Christians, uh, Gentile Christians, so much to learn about mm -hmm. our Jewish heritage. You know, you're also arguing that's reciprocal, that, mm -hmm. that, that there are unique contributions that Jesus is making beyond the mm -hmm. normal sort of boundaries um, mm -hmm. traditionally conceived in Judaism. And so I, I thought that part of 
the book was really, really powerful if you'd get into it for a second. Yeah, yeah, it was actually my first trip to Israel and it was a rabbi who had sort of helped orchestrate this trip for me. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, I think I think it might be important to say that, that um, what I don't want readers to take away is that people come to Christianity because there's some deficit in Judaism, yes. even though, as you said, there is a reciprocal. Like, I do think that Judaism, from my perspective, is only fully understood and embraced and like the beauty of it seen through the lens of Israel's Messiah, who is Jesus, right? So I don't, I don't think that um, as beautiful as I think Jewish tradition is, I do think that, you know, Jesus is the, is the sort of the climax of the covenant, right? Mm. Um but what struck me so powerfully in that conversation with that rabbi on my very first trip ever to Israel uh, <laughs> was this command of Jesus to love our enemies. And, mm -hmm. and, and that, um, which I think kind of links up to, not that Judaism doesn't have similar things, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think in a way that often doesn't get recognized, love is actually very central for Judaism, love of neighbor, love of God, you know, these kinds of things. But the thing that I had not been exposed to was love of enemy in the mm -hmm. same way. And I think part of what stands behind that is in Judaism, um, and, and again, his history backs this up. Like the Jews have just had to do everything they can to just like preserve, like self-preservation has been a huge part of Jewish history, given, yeah. Yeah. you know, being, being a minority people group in these, in these, you know, Christian or Muslim empires for most of history and being persecuted and, and, and anti-Semitism and all these things. But I think it has left Jews, many Jews anyway, with a certain disposition towards the other, uh, who has quite quite rightly been a threat to them but i think there's something about um the life and the words and the and the mission of of jesus that kind of inverts that right and it causes us to question tribalism in a certain way and again i think that's a bit of a caricature to say that judaism is tribalistic um but but it's had to be right i mean it's had mm -hmm. to be a bit insular from, from it, its very inception Yes, yes, absolutely. And so I think the way, and this in my mind has everything to do with the the, the way in which, uh, again, as I was saying, Gentile inclusion in God's covenant with Israel is at the center of the gospel. So, so Jesus requires us actually to think in a different way about the other. Mm -hmm. um, and so that struck me very, very powerfully. And as I went on later in my life to live in Israel, um, I think I, I I began to understand more of the complexity of you know the Israel Israeli Palestinian ongoing conflict and tension and and just how just how um, central that self preservation piece is mm -hmm. and yet I still think that Jesus speaks something fundamental into um, that issue and into the issue of how do we deal with with um, you know, disagreements on any level, whether they're interpersonal or political or geopolitical, you know, I think there was just something there that struck me when I saw the attitude of the fellow Jews that I was with on that trip towards Muslims in, mm -hmm. in Israel. Um, there, there was, there was a real hostility there. And I think, I think that's what Jesus challenges. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so, so that's, that's a little bit about that. And I, and I, mm -hmm. yeah, it was a powerful moment for me, as well. And, and, and I think I, in, in some ways I've continued to sort of unpack a lot of, I mean, all of these categories over the subsequent oh goodness, yeah. years, you know? Oh, yeah, of course. How could you not? Mm -hmm. So somebody reads your book and says, oh my goodness, this, there's this whole thing I'm missing. Hmm. Where did the, besides reading <laughs> what we call the old Testament, 
mm-hmm. w- is there a is there a way in a doorway in that mm-hmm. you recommend for your students? Oh, I just wrote, or... I just wrote this question down. Can I add to it then? Since you're yes, asking it, yes, absolutely, Tim. Because <clears throat> I think that our audience, there are so many people that have just are in the process of you know deconstructing the broad term, whether it's dismantling mm-hmm. or disorientation or looking critically at the faith they've grown up with. And you mentioned, you know, the, we, I think our, our, we have grown up with like that subconscious, either anti-Semitism or exoticism maybe towards, um, people of Jewish background or, um, or even like, you know, a blind political, uh, association that is not necessarily rooted in a lot, but there's these different factions that we have as, American Christians that are kind of built into our subconscious and we react mm-hmm. from there. So as we mm-hmm. have all these listeners and that, you know, we, we grew up with, if you grew up in the eighties and nineties, you grew up with the Bibles to hand out that just excluded the old Testament. It's like, here's the new mm-hmm. Testament and Psalms and Proverbs maybe. So we have kind of been in some ways constructed to push that out or to have these preconceived beliefs and notions about it. And then when you ta- mm-hmm. start to, pick apart things and you say, oh yeah, Jesus was Jewish. It's like, oh yeah, I know. And then it kind of, mm-hmm. and then there's a period and then there's a lot of blank space after that. So I think as a lot of our listeners are picking apart their faith, um, we keep using the analogy for a lot of the conversations we have that we're, we've been sitting in the, in the gift shop and we haven't gone into the national park yet. And mm-hmm. so as we're a, a group of people that are kind of trying to explore a, a larger understanding of who God is and who Jesus is, um, the deconstruction process can be so people can feel like they're floundering and kind of mm-hmm. spinning out of control and kind of it's, it can be a terrifying process. So as you, as for people that are to get to add context to the question that Mike was just asking, um, mm-hmm. to the listeners out there that are like, I want this, I want to understand this, but mm-hmm. I am scared to kind of rip the carpet out from underneath the Jesus that I've grown up to know or i'm frightened at the prospect of how vast this question is or or this new mm-hmm. room of knowledge can be where mm-hmm. what is the as a teacher or a shepherd what would be your advice or where would you tell people to start with that process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's such a great question and i feel like i you know i have a lot of students who are in a maybe similar process of deconstruction <clears throat> And so I think, I mean, I think one of the, one of the strengths that we can build on is, is the, you know, evangelical Christian commitment to reading scripture, right? I mean, that's so centerpiece in terms of what spirituality and faith looks like in, in, in the West and in these certain, you know, Christian communities. And I think, um, I think that's a great place to start. Like, how are we reading our Bibles? How are we understanding our Bibles? How are we creating categories based upon the Bibles that we read? Um, and so I think, you know, it is a little bit about reinventing the wheel, but it's also starting from where we are and having a, a set of conversations related to, you know, very basically, what is the gospel? Who is Jesus? What was Paul all about? I think that the conversations that that Christians are already so invested in are, are really rich pathways into re-asking some of these. And, and a point that I make repeatedly in the book um, and that I think uh, Jewish tradition has has uh, so much to offer here is just the being okay sitting with questions mm-hmm. and tensions. Yeah, and this sure. kind of 
Greco-Roman, you know, spirit of understanding that we've inherited, it just isn't okay with that. I mean, it, it's it's a bit ironic for me, the systematic theolo- theologian, like systematic theology wants to just like nail down every single thing, right? right. And that's not how Jews do, do it. I mean, first of all, Judaism is not a creedal religion. Like, what are the Christian creeds about? They're about like nailing it down, right? Like right. Jesus, right. divinity, humanity, we have a creed about that. You know, like we, yeah. we, we could tell you, which I love the creeds, and I think there's a lot to be said there, but I think that there's oftentimes, as you were saying, a discomfort with not knowing the answers and not having a box to put everything in. And that's where I think deconstruction can actually be very, very helpful because it kind of rattles the categories that we're so familiar with in a way that maybe challenges us to sit with the dissonance, to sit with the pieces that don't actually fit together very well. And I think a big part of the process is just being comfortable with entering into the messiness of that. And I would argue that because, um, you know, because of this artificial parting of the ways, and and as we've said, this kind of Judaism as foil to Christianity, what we've lost is so much of the richness that that Judaism, which has been preserved in Jewish tradition, which so often just gets kind of dismissed from a Christian perspective, um, in terms of reinforming those those categories that are being deconstructed. So, for example, and I talk about this in the book, like Platonic dualism, which translates into this um, negative view of our bodies. Like that's just so widespread in the Christian world. And Judaism has not had the same ambivalence about right. embodied existence. And, and the notion, and there are certain like Christians like Dallas Willard. I love Dallas Willard. And he really gets at this. Like the only way that we can be followers of Jesus in this world is through our bodies. Like mm. that's it. That's the only resource we have. Um, and yet it's fascinating to me that there's so much ambivalence toward the body in Christian in, in, in Christian tradition and religion. And that's, I think, very directly connected to how we get this disembodied notion of like what happens when we die, right? We become these right. like right. spirits found in heaven. Cause I don't think that Christian thought has has really kind of continued this narrative of affirming the goodness of creation, affirming yeah. the goodness of our bodies uh, and pressing into how our bodies are a primary resource for this spiritual life. So I think um, by by once again, kind of allowing Judaism to have um, kind of a voice in informing mm-hmm. Christian discipleship, which is of course how, how does Christian discipleship began with. Yes, is, yes. Uh, construct yes. of second temple judaism yeah. and not to say that second temple judaism is the exact same thing as contemporary judaism i think that's another misstep but there are these themes and threads uh about judaism that that are that, that are just so helpful actually in terms of understanding the new testament you know mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. um a the- theology of the body understanding you know i i have a chapter in the book about ritual purity and how that can help us to sort of unpack these really cryptic texts in the gospels yeah. um and you know our, our our concept of sin, right? Sin and the fall, and, and and just ways in which we have, as you've mentioned, these inherited categories for understanding that have been informed by Judaism as the foil. And so right. once we once we challenge the notion of Judaism and Christianity as these mutually exclusive traditions it really opens a lot of amazing doors to say, wait, that's why Christianity has like just made such a big point about mm-hmm. this. And, and, and to be fair, why Judaism has has defined itself in these really mm-hmm. specific ways against Christianity. So I think understanding that history gives us a new set of lenses to really understand um, yeah. 
how it how, maybe how it would have been had history gone another way. Yeah, totally, totally. It's so good. Where can people find you online? Just as a last question, where can people find you? Yeah, so my website is a good kind of landing pad for all my work. It's jenrosner.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. Um, and and uh, yeah, I would I would love to connect. These are these are the things that are that are most dear to me. So so please come find me online. I love it. Thank you so very much for your time today. We appreciate you very much. Yeah, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.